one of the things I'm, I'm really keen is that all boards have a patient story at the start of every board meeting because it changes the dynamic, it changes the conversation. Hello and welcome to the Medical Women podcast, the podcast from the Medical Women's Federation, the largest body of women doctors in the UK. I'm Dr. Nathana Bayankaram, I'm the Vice President of MWF, and I have the honour and joy of being your host, as each week we hear from wonderful guests to help you feel more empowered and confident on your medical career journey. Hello everyone, I hope you are all well. I can't quite believe that it's April already, I don't know about you, but it feels like this year is zooming past already. I am... Um, I quite like stationery and I bought myself several you know yearly planner things for this year and and now I'm thinking oh we're already a quarter of the year's gone and I still haven't actually used them yet I wonder when I'm actually going to set my 2023 goals who knows hopefully I'm not the only person that is that is in that boat maybe everybody else has already used their planners who knows Uh, this week we are joined by Dr Henrietta Hughes who I got to meet at the first RSMMWF event last November. Henrietta is a GP and she's also the first patient safety commissioner for England, which she was appointed to this role in July 2022. And in her role, um, the role is to help the NHS gain a greater understanding of what we can do to put patients first, better understand the importance of the views of patients and to promote the safety of patients in general. You might not know this about me, but uh, patient safety is actually one of one of my interests. I think it's so important. And I think having a culture where we can where we can speak about mistakes and our learning is really important because you know, as healthcare professionals, we are humans and humans do make mistakes. And maybe in other jobs, if you make a mistake, it doesn't have such big consequences. But when you're dealing with people and people's lives, mistakes that we make can have big consequences. And that can then make us really scared about making mistakes and about speaking about them. But it's only when we speak openly about these things and share learning and have a learning and a no-blame culture that we can really do things to, to promote patient safety. So in this episode, we spoke about what being the patient safety commissioner actually means, um, how you go about developing a new role that's never existed, and ways in which we can work more closely with patients to to have better patient safety. You know, everything we do is is for patients, so it makes complete sense that, that we include them in the conversation. So I found this a very interesting episode, and I hope you also gain lots of insights from listening. And then over the next few weeks, we're going to be sharing some episodes with you that are episodes from our recent MWF Spring Conference, uh, and also an episode that will be a recast of a podcast on which uh, Professor Chloe Orkin and I were guests So you've got lots of exciting episodes coming up as well. Um, So I hope you enjoy this episode. And as always, I really look forward to hearing back from you. So it's wonderful to have with me today, Dr. Henrietta Hughes. Um, Welcome to the podcast, Henrietta. It's lovely to have you. Thank you so much for inviting me. 
Um, please could you uh, introduce yourself for our listeners? Yes, yeah, so my role is the Patient Safety Commissioner for England. Uh, that's the first Patient Safety Commissioner in England and in the world, I think. So it's quite exciting. Um, I'm also a GP, which I do at the weekends. At the weekends, I love that. Um, and it would be great to hear a bit about your, your career and how, how you've ended up um, in or what's led you to to then be in this role? That's that's really cool that you're the first patient safety commissioner in the world. I hadn't realised that it was uh, the first role um, anywhere. So that's really exciting. Yeah, and uh, Scotland are planning to uh, to go out and recruit a patient safety commissioner. So I'm looking forward to having somebody that I can have a cup of tea and just have a bit of empathy with. Yes, absolutely. Um, but but I started off. Um, well, you know, uh, just as a child deciding I wanted to be a doctor because I've had a lot of doctors in my family and my grandfather made a surgeon's outfit for me when I was two and uh, the smell of the carbolic, I mean, that was back in the 1970s, so probably not everyone remembers that sort of hospital smell, but um, that sort of set me on my career path and then I, <clears throat> I went to Oxford and Barts for my training, and then I decided I wanted to work in obstetrics and gynaecology, and particularly in infertility. And I was very lucky that I got a, a job um, in a rotation um, for clinical and then also research, and I spent a couple of years at the IVF unit at the Hammersmith Hospital with Lord Winston and, uh, you know, it was really exciting and I was, you know, doing really great work and loving it. And uh, then I met my husband and then decided that I wanted to uh, have a job where I could come home every day and work flexibly. So I changed to general practice, much to Robert Winston's disgust. And then uh, <laughs> it was, it was a, a really great career move for me because I was able to work part-time um, when our children were small. And uh, I, because I was working part time, I could sort of dip into other things. So I became an appraiser and I was an associate editor on a medical journal. I did some teaching on various different courses, including the DRCOG and uh, some MSC and various different things. And uh, was and I was doing uh, uh, family planning clinics. So it was a really good mixture. And um, then the Health and Social Care Act came into place and uh, I was the lead appraiser in a PCT in Camden. And then as we went through various changes, I was then um, the deputy medical director for five PCTs and then the medical director for the five PCTs and then the medical director at NHS England covering uh, North Central and East London. So I had quite lots lots of promotions in quite a short period of time. Um, and at NHS England, I was responsible officer for 3,000 GPs and 1,800 dentists were under my kind of responsibility. And um, we had 12 CCGs with 12 trusts and lots of different problems. And uh, so I was involved in a lot of different areas there. Um, and I did that for another three years and had loads of experience of dealing with quality improvement, quality assurance and quality failure. And then I, um, I applied to be the National Guardian for the NHS, which was around whistleblowing. Mm -hmm. This was quite a new role. I wasn't the first, I was the second. The first National Guardian 
um, resigned after six weeks because of conflicts of interest. So it was quite a, um, I would say it was a bit of a poison chalice. And maybe I love a bit of a poison chalice. Maybe that's for me. Um, so I set up Freedom to Speak Up across England and um, we had uh, 800 Freedom to Speak Up guardians and 400 organisations involved and 70,000 cases that were um, brought by staff. And I put it into various different sort of the sort of structure of the health system, including the NHS Constitution Handbook, the NHS Standard Contract, the CQC World-Led Inspection, the Chairs and Chief Execs Appraisal Framework, the Leadership Academy programmes, everywhere I could think of, I tried to get it embedded. Um, and after five years, I, I'd been listening a lot to the patients, to the staff actually, and then uh, the patient said, well, what are you doing? What about us? What, what, who's listening to patients? So um, after I finished as the National Guardian, I did a, some other kind of portfolio uh, things as a non-exec director, um, and I chair a children's charity as well. And then the Patient Safety Commissioner role came up as a recommendation from the Cumberledge Review. And I was, um, I was encouraged to apply, I have to say. Um, so I did, but I'd never imagined that I'd get appointed. And after an extremely long process of about nine months, um, I got the call where I was expecting to be told, you were lovely, but, but in fact, like, they offered me the role. So that was great. Then I had to go through a pre-appointment scrutiny hearing with the Health and Social Care Select Committee. Then I was appointed and then I started in September last year. So it's a very long winded way <laughs> of saying how I ended up doing this role. And I, you know, from like, listening to that, I love like, listening to people's career journeys because, you know, sometimes we think, oh, I've got to like plan it all out. But actually, a lot of the times, you know, I can't imagine that you had planned out every single step of that career. As you said, you, you started off in um, obstetrics and gynecology and then pivoted because it was right at that time. Um, and you wouldn't have been able to plan that you'd become the first patient safety commissioner because the role didn't exist previously. Um, so I think it's just fascinating hearing all of that. Well, that's the one thing I would say. If, if, if you don't know what it is you want to do next, don't worry, because the job probably hasn't been invented yet. And I've done two jobs that hadn't been invented. And, you know, that's the way things are in the world at the moment, I think. And I've often heard women's careers being described as squiggly. And it's often to do with the conversation that you have with somebody or an encouragement that you get given and then you know next thing you're doing something really different and new and uh, and I think that's very exciting actually but my 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 great sort of um you know sort of thanks really is I would say to my husband who has given me all of the encouragement the, the support and has enabled me to go off and do all these slightly wacky things yeah, absolutely. It's um that that's so important, isn't it? Having having that support to to be able to go and do that. Um, and you mentioned that you were encouraged to apply for the role of patient safety commissioner. Um, was that from people who had worked with you before, or? Um... Well, no. I'll be I'll be I'll be really candid about this. Don't imagine that every time I apply for a job, I get it. You know, I think that's the other thing is that it's being able to apply for something and get knocked back, but not take it in a personal way. I, every time I've been rejected from a role, I've seen that as karma. It's because it's not the right thing for me to do. 
And um, <clears throat> that was something we were told, you know, when we were, I think, a medical students or junior doctors, that if you apply for something and it's not the right thing for you, you won't get it. Don't apply for something that you might get offered and then reject it. That's always that's bad manners, you know, um, but not, don't feel disheartened. Um, I'll tell you who that was. It was Mike Clark of Kumar and Clark who gave us that advice. Oh, okay, wow. students. And um, so I've always taken that on board. And in fact, sometimes it's when I haven't got the job that I applied for that I've then been redirected to work towards the correct one. So back, you know, years ago, I applied to be the uh, clinical tutor didn't get it and was asked to apply for the appraisal role, the appraisal lead. And that then set me off on this path. And similarly, I applied um, for, for, uh, um, for a non-exec role, didn't get it. And then after that, I was asked if I would you know, speak to the talent team at the Department of Health and Social Care, which I didn't even know existed. So it was that, that was the thing. So sometimes go for it. And if you don't get it, you might end up doing something a lot better. Mm. That's, yeah, I think that's very, very wise advice there. So thank you for sharing that. So in your role as Patient Safety Commissioner, what um, what, what exactly does, does that role involve? So I've got two, um, two areas that I'm, I'm responsible for. One is promoting the safety of patients in relation to medicines and medical devices. And the other is promoting the importance of listening to patients and but the public's views and experiences in relation to medicines and medical devices. And it, the second one is a surprising one for me because I would think it would be immediately obvious of the value of listening to patients, but clearly, you know, this is not the experience that patients have had. And uh, the groups of patients who were included in the report, First Do No Harm by Baroness Julia Cumberledge, um, included women, mainly women, who'd had hormone pregnancy tests, who had had uh, surgical uh, procedures involving mesh, so particularly pelvic mesh, and who had been uh, taking surgeon valproate during pregnancy and their, their children had been harmed. And all of these groups of patients, whether treated by surgeons or gynecologists, by neurologists, psychiatrists, GPs, they all had similar themes that they didn't have the information that they needed to make a decision about their care, that they didn't feel uh, that they were listened to when they raised concerns, and that the system itself was siloed and disjointed, and it was slow and lacking in compassion. So I, I have a very small team um, supporting me. Um, my role is an independent role, so I, I don't speak for the government, but I'm um, uh, sponsored by the Department of Health, and, and I'm uh, appointed by the Secretary of State. Um, but my reporting route is through the Health and Social Care Select Committee. And so I'm focusing on three areas at the moment, the culture, and within that, I'm thinking very much about consent and the way that we um, we, we, we consent um, uh, patients through providing information about the benefits, risks, the alternative uh, options for treatment, and also if we do nothing, um, conflicts of interest and how we declare those, um, and the listening culture across the system. So I'm really keen that the patient voice is incorporated at all different levels, particularly for the senior leaders who are sometimes a little bit remote from the front line. Um, and then my other areas of focus are around sodium valproate and around mesh because there are still unresolved issues 
that need to be addressed. Um, but I do have hundreds of people contacting me about a wide range of other topics. Um, so it's clear that my role is wider than the groups of patients from First Do No Harm. Mm. And I, I mean, I guess day to day sort of varies for you in terms of what kind of things you do, but what what would a typical day look like for you? Well, I've been thinking about that because the, there isn't a typical day. And, you know, one of the the things I would say is about my office is very fledgling state. So um, there's still a lot we need to sort out just from the practical things like having an office and, um, you know, having a, a website, for example. Um, but I recently published my 100 day report, which um, we published on the Patients Association website. They very kindly let us do that. And so my, my, my normal day is around partnership working. And that can be teams calls with um, officials from the department or with, um, with, with people from the national bodies like the regulators, the professional regulators, um, the Royal Colleges and um, the associations. So uh, professional bodies, um, but I'm also meeting with patients, going out to visit in um, trusts and in um, going to conferences and speaking at events and spending quite a lot of time in Parliament, um, either at Portcullis House, meeting MPs or meeting um, APPGs, which are groups of MPs and peers who um, focus on a particular issue. And, and then doing a lot of sort of preparations for um, <clears throat> slides for, for uh, conferences and speaking um, events and uh, writing. I seem to write a lot of speeches at the moment. So it's and quite when, different. It's quite different because it's <laughs> a lot of it is about hearing from people, particularly patients, and then converting that into a really clear message about how things could be different. Yes, absolutely. Um, it sounds very like, like very varied all the different things that um, that you're doing, and I guess quite different as well. Because generally, as um, through our medical training, we wouldn't have experience of. I mean, we have experience of speaking to patients, of course, but not to, of of speaking to MPs and then you know taking what patients say to to MPs. How, how have you found like? the whole process of doing things that are different to what you were doing before? Um, I think there's, we, we learn a sort of system of doing things. So um, for me, it's the combination of the consultation model, you know, the history, the tests and making a diagnosis and then developing a treatment plan. And as a GP, I will always think about things from the physical, psychological and social element and understanding the ideas, concerns, and expectations. So it's not that different. It's just mm -hmm. a different setting. And um, so having, having a systematic way of being able to listen, listen to understand what matters to that person. And what matters to me, I think, is a really important question. So for an individual patient, they might have a very different um, need compared to another patient so if you're trying to admit them overnight they might be worrying about who's going to look after their children or who's going to you know feed the cat and so we need to ask the question what matters to you 
to find that out. And I'll ask that same question to officials or to senior leaders. And what I find is really interesting is that they do have thoughts and feelings and they'll sometimes pause, maybe slightly look up at the ceiling a bit because that's the way people look when they're thinking and then tell me what matters to them. And what I hear so much is that what matters to people is getting it right for patients. And people are really keen to see safety as much higher up the agenda. And what I hear so much is that what's getting in the way of that is the industrialization of medicine, the fact that so much emphasis goes on to financial control and to efficiency and to productivity and to backlog clearance and to operational performance. When in fact, what we need is the humanity in medicine, which is about people, the people we're looking after and their families and the people who are providing the care and the people who are doing the managing and who are doing the leading and everybody has needs. So I'm really keen that everyone is feels that they're able to do the part of that equation that they need to do in a way which is psychologically safe, which, which requires listening, which requires acting and also requires support. Um, so I, I think that we can't separate out what's safe for patients from what's safe for the staff who are looking after them as well. And in my previous role as National Guardian, I certainly heard that the well-being of the workforce and the safety of the workforce and the safety of the patients were all absolutely interconnected. So I'm really keen that we, we, we bring that information to senior yeah. leaders so that they're able to then use that to develop the strategies, to think about the policies, and then to be checking back in to say, what does that feel like for you, whether that's for the staff or whether that's for the patients and the families? Yeah, thank you. Those, um, yeah, they are very linked, aren't they? That staff well-being links to their safety and then the safety of patients. And I think particularly at the moment with the pressures that, that we're under, it's um, kind of shown how important it is that we look after staff so that they can Look at, like do their best to look after the patients as well. Yes, absolutely. And I think patient groups recognise that as well. Um, so it's not about getting it right for one group and worse for the other. It's about what gets it better for everybody because then we get the compassion and we get the privacy and the dignity for patients. You know, it's a, it's a whole interconnected system. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it sounds like a, a fascinating, fascinating role. And I guess, you know, kind of evolving more and more because it is it is a new role. Yeah. And, and somebody said to me that if you work in culture change, you've got a job for life. But I also think that culture can change quickly. We can start seeing things looking different, feeling different. One of the things I, I'm really keen is that all boards have a patient story at the start of every board meeting because it changes the dynamic. It changes the conversation. And so, for example, the Department of Health main board and the main board of NHS England don't hear a, staff, a patient story at board. And I think there's a risk of the disconnection. Um, and I've been encouraging them to do this and all boards actually to do this because um, it's their decisions that make such a huge impact on everybody else. 
Um, and having sat on a board myself, I know the difference that it makes when we hear from a patient or a staff story, because then it sets everything into context and it helps to connect the people who are um, making the decisions and making the decisions that can impact on, for example, the finance or the procurement or the facilities management and how that then has a flow through into patient safety. So I want everyone who's in a senior position to recognize that they have a role in patient safety. Um, I love that idea of having a patient story at the beginning of every board meeting because it then reminds you know it it reminds everyone of what what the purpose is of the board and of the organization ultimately it is there to to serve patients and I guess you know you mentioned there about senior leaders but I guess each of us regardless of whether we have like an official leadership title or not we can do things to to bring patient safety to the forefront of what we're doing. Yes, absolutely. And I'm quite excited about the new role of patient safety partners who are being appointed in trusts and in regions and ICSs. Um, and they work alongside the patient safety managers and patient safety specialists. So there's a lot of acronyms there, but basically the patient safety partners are people who've got experience as patients who are maybe lay members or retired clinicians who bring the patient perspective and they've been helping to uh, develop better patient pathways but also looking at the way that incidents and complaints are responded to and putting that humanity back and that I think that's really exciting and Helen Bevan who um, spoke at one of your recent events actually describes these as the Trojan mice you, you, you don't make change happen through Trojan horses it's through Trojan mice positive agents of change who make change happen locally. And so I'm really excited about the potential for these roles, um, but I'm also really interested um, about patient directors. So the recent NICE guidance suggests that every board should have a uh, patient experience director and um, only two organizations have appointed as far as I'm aware. So I'm looking forward to seeing more of them being uh, appointed and the patient voice being very strong at board so that it's making sure that, uh, that there's a connection between the purpose and the patients. And that's where I see a real positive there. Um, so I feel quite optimistic that there are some structural changes that are happening, but of course I'm keen to get this into everything so that um, we don't see safety as a sort of um, technocratic side side show. It's actually something that we all feel, uh, you know, there's part of our core business as if we were working in a high safety industry like aviation or nuclear or chemical plants. And just to hear you describe it there, I mean, it seems a bit bonkers that we're not thinking about it in everything that we do because we do lots of things that can be high, like everything we do has has risks involved. So safety and thinking about patient safety is really integral to everything that, that we do in medicine. Yeah, and that's why I'm really excited that, you know, this role of the patient safety commissioner has actually happened because um, I, I agree. I think it is bonkers. I think that's a great way of describing it. And we, we cr create error-provoking environments and then we do everything we can to mitigate these problems. So throughout my career, you know, and I'm sure throughout yours and all the listeners, we've all looked at things and thought, 
how on earth could that happen? And it's because things have layered on and layered on, and we've got gaps between primary and secondary care, between you know community and sexual health services, between you know the uh, mental and physical. We we create these artificial um, definitions, and in mm. fact, it's all the same patients that we're we're you know looking after. And so, as a GP, I try and navigate people through this incredibly complex and baffling system. And now I'm sort of doing more on the Whitehall Westminster uh, sort of estate. That's even more baffling to me. Um, and so I think I bring a sort of cool headed common sense approach to things, which, you know, if I give you an example, which is sort of ultimately, I think it's embarrassing to us as a system that sodium valparate known to be harmful in pregnancy is produced in boxes of 30, 100 and 112 but GP prescriptions are done in multiples of 28. In fact, you can always tell a GP because we know our 28 times table so incredibly well. But if you're a pharmacist and you get a prescription for 56 tablets, by law, you have to take the boxes of 30, which have got warning labels all over them, and remove the pills from there, snip off two from each pack and decant them into a plain white box. And so I've said to GPs, could we change it so that we do all the prescriptions in 30s? And I've had a bit of a, mm, that would be a lot of hard work for us to do. And I've spoken to the you know people who deal with the manufacturers and said, could we ask the manufacturers to make them in boxes of 28? Well, if that happens, they're just gonna stop supplying them to England. I'm like, really? Okay, so what's happening with the consultation then? Well, it's stuck somewhere in the department. So, what can I say? I know that there's a good solution to this. And I, I, I go by the acronym of PUSH, which is persist until something happens. So I will carry on persisting and I'll carry on persisting with all the different actors in this until the right thing happens for patients. Because at the moment, we're still having three babies a month born exposed to sodium valparate. That's what I'm here to fix. Yeah, I mean, just, you know, yeah. I think bunkers is the only word that's coming to my mind again that for something like that that the manufacturers won't change their thing and but then if we don't it's it's just bizarre that we don't have systems where it all kind of links together anyway and it makes sense that you get a box that then is easy to prescribe rather than having these different numbers and then pharmacists having to decant things and then take things off it's just yeah streamlining the process Yes, exactly. And it's a terrible waste as well, because it's a waste of the pharmacist time. It's a waste of the packaging. It's a waste of the patients. Yeah, it's just a, it, if we want to have efficiency and productivity, <clears throat> I would say start with the culture, then the safety follows and then the money follows. That's the order that we need to be doing this in. If we start with the money, then we move straight back to the days of mid-staffs. And that is the problem. And it's really trying to remind each other that, you know, 10 years on from the publication of the Mid-Staffs Review, we could be going straight back there. And so I'm there to remind, to inform, to cajole, to uh, encourage and support. And it's getting the balance of support and challenge because everyone's feeling a bit exhausted at the moment. Everyone's feeling a bit vulnerable. Everyone feeling that they're doing their bit of it. And if only somebody else could do their bit, then it would be so much better. 
And so I need everybody to know a bit more about the whole pathway. And it's not just about sodium valproate, it's about everything that we do. So I know what happens in my GP part of my pathway, but I don't really know what happens to the patient when they go on to the next bit. Mm. And they don't really know what happens to the patient when they discharge them back into the community. We need to have much better communication across the whole patient pathway to make it better for our patients. And we need to be talking to each other. And that's why something like this podcast is so great, because it's about maybe giving inspiration to some people who think, gosh, wouldn't it be great to be able to, you know, hear directly from the corridors of power and feedback into them? And it is, but it's also really great doing clinical practice. And that's why I love doing that at the weekends, because you're talking to people who come with a problem and you can actually move them one step on their journey, maybe get them a bit better, listen, listen carefully, and ideally have an unhurried conversation, which I'm, I'm very lucky to do that because I'm not doing full time clinical practice Mm. but I think it's also about setting a goal of where we'd like it to be and bringing patients into the team having patient partnership as our destination doing things with patients rather than to them and if any of your listeners have ever been a patient which I have been and had all sorts of medical conditions myself I know what it's like being on the other side so you know I'm really keen to get this right because I, I, I can see what it's like when it's wonderful and I know what it's like when it isn't. And I'd like it to be great, you know, for everybody. Yep, absolutely. Well, it just like, all of your ideas sound, sound great. So look forward to, <laughs> um, to, to seeing how, how all of them progress. Um, I've just got some quick fire questions for you now, Henrietta. No problem. Uh, so my first question, which probably shouldn't be asking because I keep buying lots of books um, faster than I'm able to read through them, but I'll ask anyway. Um, do you have one or two books that you would recommend for our listeners to read? Oh, yes. Well, there's a book which is a very slim volume, you'll be happy to hear, which is called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was a psychologist and a psychiatrist, and he ended up in Auschwitz and other concentration camps. And what he uh, was able to describe was that everything can be taken away from you. I mean, everything can be taken away from you. All of the things that we have that help us to create our identity. You know, we've got university degrees and medical qualifications. We've got, you know, all sorts of bells and whistles that, that help to determine our identity. And all of those can be taken away. But the one thing that nobody can take away is how you respond to any given situation. That is the only thing that is within our control. So how we respond is our choice. That's fundamental. And it's fundamental in terms of how we engage with each other, how we engage with our friends, our families, our colleagues, our patients, the person on the street. So I would highly recommend everybody reads that book. It's a, it's a very deep and fundamental book. That's my only book that I would recommend. Thank you. And thank you for recommending a book that I already have so that I don't have to go out and buy another one. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't actually read it yet, though, so I will definitely get to reading it. Um, is there anything you know now that you wish you had known earlier on in your career? Um, yes. Stepping away 
is not a negative thing. Stepping away is a very positive thing if you do it with intent. And I've trained in uh, neuro-linguistic programming, NLP. And I think where a good position to be in is it's called at cause or at effect. It's not very nice being at effect. That's a bit like being a house officer or junior doctor F1 when you've just got a thousand tasks being bombarded at you continuously. Being at effect is when you have some autonomy, some control, even a tiny bit of control over what you're doing. And that's a good place to be in. So I would really encourage people to be confident about a squiggly career, about stepping away, about stepping away and then stepping back, which I've done on many occasions through my career, um, but also <clears throat> thinking about what it is that they can be at cause so that the being at effect is a smaller part of their day. I love that. That's, um, that's really helpful. Thank you for, for sharing that with us. My next question is, is there any advice that you've ever been given that's been really helpful that you would wish to share with others? Um, I get given advice continuously. I think that's one of the things about um, maybe being a woman. People feel that they, they can advise you continuously. I'll, I'll give you one, actually. This one is really great. Um, I got diagnosed with cancer and um, it was a, you know, a bit of a shock and it made me sort of feel quite nervous about how much time I had to be able to do things. And it was a bit of a galvanizing thing. And my deputy uh, sent me a video of a woman in a running race. And at the beginning of the race, she falls flat on her face and you think, oh, that's it. But she gets up. And she runs and faster and faster and overtakes everybody and wins the race. And <clears throat> the advice I was given was, this is a bump in the road. And it was so empowering because it, it gave me that feeling of this isn't it. This is, this is something, but it isn't it. Yes, I need to go and find that video. It sounds, it sounds great, but that's, that's lovely advice from, from your colleague. Thank you for sharing that. Um, my last question is a question that I'm borrowing from a patient group, actually. It's a group of children and young people who work with the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health. They're called the RCPCH and us. Um, and they got the group involved in interviewing the potential presidents of the college. So they came up with this question and it's brilliant. So I asked if I could borrow it and they very kindly said yes. So the question is, if you were a type of biscuit, what type of biscuit would you be and why? Mm. Okay, so I think I would be a chocolate hobnob. And the reason for this is because it's practically a meal in itself. You've got almost all your main food groups there. You've got your grains, you've got your chocolate. But also it, it's firm under the you know, hot water. So if you dunk it in your tea, you put it in hot water, it maintains its integrity. Mm. And so it doesn't sort of dissolve and fall apart in the hot water. And I think that's a really um, important aspect, which is about being true to your values. If you can maintain your integrity when you're in hot water, then people can rely on you your, your, your actions are predictable, which I think is really important in a leader. And also you can feel better about the actions and the, and the decisions that you make. I love that answer. 
Um, again, this is another question that I probably shouldn't be asking about biscuits because then my, I'm sure my biscuit intake has exponentially increased since we <laughs> started the podcast. Um, and a few listeners have got in touch to, to say the same. So, <laughs> yep. Um, I feel like I should start some sort of shop where people can come and like have biscuits and read books. Um, but anyway, thank you so much, Henrietta, for coming on the podcast. It's been so lovely to speak to you and to understand more about the role of Patient Safety Commissioner. Well, thank you so much. And I, I see everyone as an ally, you know, so the patient safety work that everyone listening to this will be doing will make a massive difference, you know, and it will make a difference not only to our patients and their families, but also to the morale and the and the well-being of those looking after them as well. So thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Medical Women podcast. Make sure to subscribe for free on whichever podcast platform you listen on so that you automatically get our episodes. The aim of this podcast is to support and empower as many medical women in their careers as we possibly can. So please share this episode with at least one other medical woman. If you're interested in joining the Medical Women's Federation, we would love to have you. And all links to our website and social media are in the show notes. This podcast has been produced on behalf of the Medical Women's Federation by Dr. Nathana Bayankaram and Ms. Jenna McKenzie. Our music was composed and played by Dr. Keith Bayankaram. Thank you so much for listening.